Beautiful. Thank you, choir. Good morning. Well, this morning we're in Acts chapter 21, 22, and 23. <laughs> there we go. It's a chunk, a chunk of scripture. And Paul really faces some hardships. And I thought, who wants hardships? Who wants trials? I think few of us welcome them. I'm reading this book, uh, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, An English Professor's Journey into Christian Faith. It's uh, by Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Brian mentioned it last week. Uh, on page five, she speaks about purpose. And what was striking about it is that uh, she's a fledgling believer in Jesus Christ. I mean, she's really made some radical changes in her life. The Lord has. And she's contrasting the struggle between her life before following Christ and her life after it. And she writes, outside of the Lord, life is a very treacherous ordeal. Proverbs teaches this when its author Solomon writes, the way of the unfaithful is hard. Not the faithful, the unfaithful. Not the follower, but the one who does not follow her. Not the one who knows Christ, but the one who does not know Christ. The way of the unfaithful is hard. Proverbs 13, 15. She continues, of course, Christian life is hard too. But it is hard in another way in a way that is at least bearable and purposeful. Christians can lay hold of the meaning and purpose and grace of suffering and truly believe that all things, even the evil ones, work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28 which I found striking because it is Paul that is our hero, if you will, in this portion of Acts that we're looking at this morning. He wrote that. Now he's living it. He's an example to us. Rosaria adds, a life outside of Christ is both hard and frightening. A life in Christ has hard edges and dark valleys, but it's purposeful, even when painful. Adversity and hardship can bring out the worst in us, especially if we think it's meaningless, if it's just some Lousy roll of the dice. But it can also bring out the best in us. Especially if we think it's meaningful. Because it's purposeful. 
And that really teaches us to find purpose in the little things. Not the things that we've preordained for our day to have meaning, but all the little things that interrupt it or the things that seem to cause our day to go just the opposite of what we had planned and purposed for ourselves. Adversity and hardship can bring out the best in us. Whether it's a flat tire when you're time-challenged, a cranky toddler when you're at your wit's end, a thoughtless co-worker, an ache that won't seem to go away, a teacher with a grudge against Jesus' people. Any trial can be a privileged opportunity to let Jesus shine in you and be purposeful. Every trial can become a testimony. In fact, every trial is a testimony, positive or negative, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our lives. What's your trial say about you? I've been asking myself this week because there are lots of little trials. Sometimes we just kind of think we're in a stretch of bad luck or something. But I'm beginning to see, especially when I ask myself, what's this trial say about me? What's the testimony of my life? What's the message that others see in me as I'm going through this little thing? I got into the office this morning, got in early, really early for me, because I wanted to do some work on this. I was here yesterday. The computer worked fine. I spent all that extra time <laughs> docking my computer, undocking it, booting it, unbooting it. I mean, it was just, I, it, it doesn't work. And I'll tell you, that gets to your countenance. Especially when you think, Wow, what I'm doing this morning couldn't be more important to me. What's your trial say about you? Does it say, my Jesus is the living Lord of all? Or my Jesus is the Jesus of burned tortillas on eBay? You know, a Jesus who shows up on a tortilla and not in our troubles. I've been thinking about a, an old song I've grown to love. I serve a risen Savior. We don't sing it much anymore, but I serve a risen Savior. And then this line, he's in the world today. And then that kind of finale, that punchline, you ask me how I know he lives he lives within my heart. If the Lord of the resurrection lives in our hearts, we can turn any trial into a testimony. More importantly, you and I can turn our trials into testimonies because we serve a risen Savior and He's in the world Today, and more importantly, 
I know he lives. He lives within my heart. In this chunk of Acts, Paul seizes every opportunity. Opportunities I might miss. Busy as I would be throwing a pity party. <laughs> a pity party for one. But he seizes every opportunity to turn a trial in every sense of the word into a testimony. And he speaks to the crowd in chapter 22. He speaks to the high council of Jerusalem in chapter 23. And to Claudius the tribune. In chapter 21, chapter 22, and chapter 23. Because it's the tribune who's trying to figure out what's going on. Because Paul is in his custody. And we see here that we can turn any trial into a testimony. A testimony of a radically changed life to the crowd. Before I share this. Well, let's read uh, verses uh, verses 27 to the end of chapter 21. But what I want to do is show you something. We'll advance this slide so you can see it. How do I look? Do I look like I'm enjoying myself? There we go. This is the temple, and this area here is the, well, this is the temple. If you've ever seen a picture of Jerusalem, lots of postcard pictures are shown from the Mount of Olives, and that distinctive golden dome is the Dome of the Rock, the Islamic Dome of the Rock. And that Dome of the Rock probably sits right about where this is, but that gives you a sense of where the temple, this is a part of the Temple Mount. This is the temple area, and this is the temple enclosure. This little, I, I shaded it green so you could kind of get a feel for where Paul was uh, in the passage we're about to read. This is the Antonia. This, this temple was built or in the process of being completed by Herod the Great. And these pictures I'm showing you are from Ehud Netzer, probably the uh, best scholar of Herodian architecture. And uh, this is where he puts the Antonia, named after Antony, who was kind of a patron of Herod the Great. And this is where the Romans are stationed. This is a, a citadel, if you will. And it's from there they can look down on what's going in the courtyard of the Temple Mount. And this is the court of women and then the court of uh, men and the court of priests. So that gives you a little idea. Uh, There was a, a boundary markers and it read like this. No foreigner is to enter within the balustrade and embankment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for what follows. Death. So here's the Temple Mount, a little better picture of the Antonia. Here's a closer pick, picture. And when Paul is speaking to the crowd, I picture him somewhere right in here. He's been carried up these steps by the tribune and the, and the guards. 
And uh, it's somewhere in here after he asked permission to speak to the crowd. And that kind of brings us uh, up to date. So let's, uh, let's read chapter 21 starting at verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia, which would be the Ephesus area. And remember, there were lots who didn't like Paul's ministry, and, and probably you would characterize them as really hated Paul. You remember how in our reading through Acts, Paul was, sometimes the Jews followed him and raised a ruckus and had him driven out of town. And they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place, the temple. And besides, he's brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They'd previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. And that was a no-no, as we just read. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Now, the place was clogged, probably, swollen with pilgrims. And that's why these Jews recognize the Asian, Trophimus, because they're there for Pentecost, which is one of the, Paul, he says prior to this, wanted to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And so this festival time brings p pilgrims from all over. And so you've got to imagine a lot of people here. And they dragged him from the temple, verse 30, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. So the word reached him in the Antoniah. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. That would be between two soldiers, one chain on each arm. Then he asked who he, who he was and what he'd done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks, the Antoniah. When Paul reached the great, pardon me, when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. And the crowd then followed and kept shouting away with him, probably trying to make their way up the steps. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. And having received the commander's per permission, Paul stood on the steps and mentioned to the crowd, motioned to the crowd, and when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, 
or Hebrew, but more likely Aramaic. It would be very similar. It would be like uh, listening to the King James Version. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. Now, what's interesting about this defense is you would expect it to be a defense against the charge in verse 28. He's brought a Gentile into the sacred precincts. He opposes us. He defiles the temple. But what really Paul emphasizes, and what amazes me, in all of his message here that is cut off in verse 21. So from here to 21, he talks about his transformed life, that he has been radically changed. And that's why I give, I give our first big point when I see Paul turning a trial into a testimony. Is he talks about how, in fact, he's been radically changed. And the foundation of this is what a persecutor he was of Christians. Of the very people uh, who would, it seems, uh, as he is being charged, be an opposer of their God, as they saw it. Uh, opposing their customs and opposing the temple. He talks about his devotion and his persecution of the Christians. And it is really striking just how strict and devout Paul was. And this would resonate with the people. In fact, in a way, without being blunt, he says, I was more strict than you. I was more zealous for the law and for his honor than you. I, in my zeal, persecuted these people even to the point of death. And even though it was under an earlier high priest, I mean, he had, in a sense, the ability to name drop people that they would know that were the icons of their heritage and devotion. It's striking to me that after being beaten, pulled out of this angry crowd, that Paul even had the presence of mind to think not about himself, but about an opportunity, about an occasion to give a testimony, to realize that he could seize this moment. Uh, it goes to show you what a perf- purposeful outlook this, uh, this great man had. And I think he had a sense not only of his purpose which is a purpose that we share, but the providence of God. Let me just try to illustrate a little bit the providence of God with a couple of uh, examples. Uh, I was reminded this week of, a, of an account given by Chuck Swindoll of a, of a, of a friend in, in ministry who felt called to Uganda, which was pretty radical for for this friend, and it involved uprooting his family, selling everything here, and going there. 
And in that process, he and his wife traveled to Kenya, which is next door, and then he himself took a Range Rover and crossed over the border into Uganda to travel into the heart of Uganda. And in all this time, he's, he's seeking to confirm this sense of God's calling that, that they have prayed about tremendously to Uganda. And as he's driving along and he starts to near the, his destination along the road, he sees kids with guns firing them into the, into the air. And as he drives by, they point them at him. And he's thinking, is this really where I'm supposed to be? He finds a lodging for the night, a dingy hotel. He goes in and he makes arrangements. There's no room available, just one bed. He's given access to this room. It's two flights up. He climbs up there, enters the room, and there's a single light bulb hanging over a table and two beds, and one is unmade, and he begins to realize that he's got a roommate who doesn't happen to be there at the moment, and he's just kind of overwhelmed by this sense of repulsion, and he gets down on his knees, and he starts praying and asking God, is this really your leading? Is this where I'm supposed to be? And as he's Still in prayer, the door opens, he stops praying, and there's a six-foot-five African there with a frown on his face because he's found somebody in his room. And he says, what are you doing here? Where are you from? And he explains that he's from America, and that he's there because he's with the navigators. And as soon as he said the navigators, this big man grabbed him and started hugging him and balancing him and turning around as almost like he were dancing in joy. And he says, this is an answer to prayer. I've been praying for two years. And he pulls out a navigator memory card and shows him the little indication there Colorado, and he says, are you from this place? Because he was speaking in the king's English, this beautiful accent, and he says, yes, I'm from this place. Sometimes you have to follow the Lord to find out that he's really leading you. Jerry Sitzer in 1991 was driving in his minivan with his wife, his mother, and his four children when a drunk driver jumped the lane and hit him head on, killing his wife and one of his children, his four-year-old. In his book, A Grace Revealed, which, by the way, when my friend Jesse lost his wife and two children, hit head-on right after church. In fact, he was in a small group praying with some men when a siren went by. And he said, let's pray for that situation to that small group. And then later was told that he lost his young wife and his two children, Bo and Hannah. And I remember Jesse telling me because I'd been Jesse's instructor at the college level and then 
at the seminary level, I mentored him and had him as a student as well. And I'd been up to Oregon to, to speak at his church. And, and Jesse told me, and I drove up to Oregon to be with him. She was part of both memorials to Pam and the children. And uh, I'll never forget Jesse, that time alone with him, just only... A day later, because it took me about 10 hours to get there, he said, John, I hurt so much. If I could leave this earth right now and be with them, I'd run right past Jesus to see them. Which he felt bad about, but that's how he really felt. But Jesse told me that the one book that spoke to him more than any other in his grief was Jerry Sitzer's. A grace revealed. One day he was driving along with his son David. And David was eight at the time. And David says, uh, he says, Dad. And Jerry says he knew that the question was boiling. He was a very quiet boy, very thoughtful. And he hadn't spoke about the situation much. And he said, Dad, do you think Mom sees us? And Jerry said to her, he said, yeah, maybe, maybe she does. Yeah, I, I think she probably does. And then David began to protest because he said, heaven is such a, a lovely, wonderful place. If it's that lovely and that wonderful, how could they see what's going on with us down here? Wouldn't that, in effect, you see, interfere with heaven itself and its glory and its joy? Harry Sitzer, Jerry Sitzer says, I think she does see us, pain and all, but she sees the whole story, including how it all turns out. It's beautiful to her. It's going to be a good story, David. That's the providence of God. Realizing that he is very much in this world, very much in our lives, very much in the little things that seem meaningless but aren't. And Paul saw the meaning and he had this opportunity. As I was thinking about this this week, I, I, I kind of chastised myself because when I sifted and collected some of the hardest days of my life, and a lot of them last 39 years have been in ministry, some of them were pretty forlorn. But they were forlorn because they were lapses in confidence in God. And Paul in this confidence gives his testimony and he says, Look, I'm just like you, but I have been changed. I have been radically changed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's his message. And then in verses 14 and 15, I mean, in fact, he is, he's offering to persecutors listening to him. Because now he's on the butt end of what he himself was doing. He's the recipient of a whole bunch of souls out there. But he's now Paul. And he says, you, like me, can be changed. 
through Jesus Christ. And then in 14 and 15, 15, 14, 15, and 16, he recounts how Ananias had told, told him that he'd been chosen by God for three important things and ultimately a fourth. And those three important things and ultimately the fourth are to know his will, to see the righteous one. That is to actually see the risen Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And to hear his testimony or to hear a voice from his mouth, literally. And then a fourth, you will be a witness for him to everyone. To everyone. Man, that struck me. Because that's why Paul leads to verse 21. And that's when they cut him off. That's when they won't hear any more. He says, God has led me to the Gentiles. Led me to people very different than us. Led us to people who aren't like us. My ministry isn't just, my testimony isn't just, my witness isn't just to persecutors. Boy, I think that's really relevant for us. We don't have blue bloods. We don't have echelons and classes and castes. But we sure have prejudices. And there are some people, we don't even care if they get our testimony We don't show them the resurrection of Jesus Christ because we're preoccupied with ourselves. What's amazing to me is that they just cut him off when he brought in the Gentiles. But Paul had to say that because he was committed to the real essence of the gospel. The resurrection isn't just for a few. It's not just for insiders. This resurrection is not only life-changing, but world-changing for those who take it to heart. That God in Jesus Christ has brought to a penultimate consummation in the resurrection his work of the world, his redemptive work. And when, right, when Christ returns, it'll be consummated. And we're to be a part of the spread of that gospel, which has been the essence of Acts. Do you have a testimony of God's radical change? Maybe yours isn't as radical of, as Paul's or even as radical as mine. But it's still radical because it's got to go to the root, which is the very essence of the word radical. Each and every day in our lives, there should be a testimony of radical change because he lives. He lives. He lives in this world today. He lives within my heart. That is our testimony. As we stumble along, I am not perfect. But I am refreshed and each and every day I'm just renewed because I know at the cross this one who died for me rose again. He lives. He lives within my heart today. 
and my sin is canceled that I can keep falling forward and moving forward. And that is just such a beautiful hope and joy. Nothing can keep us down. Nothing can keep us back in Jesus Christ if we walk with him. That's a radical change. And we can turn a trial into a testimony. A testimony of the real issue, as Paul does to the council. I've got to jump right to the core of this. The, the tribune keeps trying to figure out, he speaks Greek. He says, do you speak Greek? And Paul, in an obviously refined language, he knows this guy isn't the Egyptian because uh, his, whole, his whole temperament, his deportment, the way he carries himself, even under such, such circumstances, and he keeps trying to find out if Paul has really broken Roman law or just Jewish law. And so after this message, and they go crazy again, they start throwing dirt and waving their tunics, and Paul says, I want you to interrogate him, and so they str strap him with lashes, and they're going to lash him, which can, can kill you. And Paul, amazingly calmly, as he's lashed and ready to be struck, he says to the uh, centurion, this is at the end of chapter 22, he says, is it, is it lawful to, to interrogate, interrogate a Roman citizen before he's been tried? Which is a no-no. In fact, they became fearful and they went immediately to the tribune. And then the tribune comes and speaks to him because he's just amazed. That, and then he says, well, where'd you get your citizenship? He says, I bought mine, which didn't mean it was just bought on the black market. But he had to bribe people in high offices to move up the ladder and, and really get his citizenship. And Paul says, I was born to mine, which is the highest level of citizenship. And now the tribune begins to realize this Paul is a whole different animal than I thought he was. So instead of having him beaten, he says, I'm going to have you go to the Sanhedrin. It's an informal pretrial kind of council, and that's in chapter 23. And in the first, Paul comes in and he, ta he, he, he speaks of his innocence, his clear conscience toward doing God's, God's duty and his obligation, and the, the priest has him struck now, he's got guys on other side, and so if he says, strike him. That means he's struck more than once in the mouth. And Paul doesn't act too Christian at that moment. He calls the high priest a whitewashed wall, which means he's a hypocrite, you know. He looks clean and sturdy, but inside, he's really in bad shape. He's crumbling. And in fact, then he's told that's the high priest, and everybody wonders, all scholars wonder whether Paul was just being a little bit coy when he says, I did not know he was the high priest, or if because of his possible poor eyesight, he didn't recognize him. Maybe he wasn't in his regalia because it was an informal council. But then in verse 6, I mean, Paul knows he's not going to get a fair trial, but in verse 6 he says something very profound. He says, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, and I'm on trial. I'm being tried. I'm here before you because of the hope and resurrection of the dead. The hope of Israel implied and the resurrection of the dead. 
And of course, that starts a big row because the, the council is made up of Sadducees and Pharisees, like Democrats and Republicans. Nothing's changed because they can't seem to get along and they can't agree on some fundamental issues. Sadducees say there is no resurrection. Sadducees say there is no interim or life after death whatsoever. In fact, Josephus writes of the Sadducees, Sadducees will have nothing to do with the persistence of the soul after death with penalties in the underworld or rewards. So that's it. When you die, you're dead. You're done. Death, dead, and done. But for the Pharisees, they believe, and we're told this, in verse 8, which is really quite interesting. And I want to read it to you. I probably don't have time to do this. So, But Luke gives us a little insight here. This is like his editorial comment. He says, the Sadducees say, I'm reading this from the NIV, that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. But the word is not all, it is the word both. All the translations, most of the translations tend to say all. But only in the past few years has research shown that it should be both, and I'll tell you why. It's clearly both in the Greek, is that... See, the Sadducees only based their thinking on the first five books of the Bible. So their Bible was really thin. And in, that, in those first five books, they didn't think there was any mention of the resurrection. There is mention of angels. So they didn't deny angels per se or God's angels or his spirit. But they denied human if you will, angels and spirits. And that's the point. I'll just summarize this. Pharisees liken people for lack of a, a handle to describe people in the interim state between death and the resurrection alluded to them as angels or spirits. And so when it says they deny the resurrection angels and spirits, what he's saying is, he, they deny the resurrection, that's one, and they deny angels or spirits. There's the second. There's both, you see. And by the way, you remember the disciples mistook Jesus for a spirit when they first saw him, not resurrected. You remember when Peter was released from prison, but all the people were praying at the house, and they didn't think, they thought he had been put to death, like James. And when they heard the, the uh, maid come in and say, Peter's at the door, they said, it's his spirit. I could go on, but you get the point. What Paul is saying to them, and he's trying to find a hearing, he never seems to give up on an opportunity. He had no chance with the Sadducees because of this bone of contention, but he still wanted to put it out there. Jesus has been risen. He didn't get the chance because things got too wild. I mean, what can he do? But you can tell he's trying. He's turning every trial into a testimony, and that really is the heart of it, the resurrection. 
And then the third thing that I really see here is this remarkable contrast to the tribune Claudius. And I won't elaborate it much, but Paul is articulate compared to ranting, confused uproar that Claudius witnesses from his countrymen, chapter 21, verses 34 through 35. He's polite. He asks permission. That's not a persecutor. That's not a rebel like the Egyptian. In chapter 21, verse 37 and 39 through 40, he's even resigned to the Lord's providence when chained. In chapter 27, verse 33, or ready to be lashed in chapter 22, 25. He's under plot. Forty of his countrymen take an oath to kill Paul in the end of chapter 23. And they include some of the Sanhedrin. They ask to hear from Paul again. And then they have a plot to murder him when he's produced. But Paul has a sister in the city and her nephew The details of how he learned this, what inside connection he had, are not made available. But he comes to Paul and tells him of the plot. Paul has that reported to the tribune. The tribune takes it seriously at this point because of who Paul is and what he's seen. And he writes a letter to Felix and he has Calvary take him to Caesarea, and then on to the place where Paul will be tried before the, the governor, the provincial governor, Felix. And he writes a letter and he says, I find that this is a problem between them and not us. But what I want to draw your attention to in conclusion is this verse, verse 11 of chapter 23. Standing beside Paul, the Lord said, and this was the night after that hearing, keep up your courage, for you have been given a testimony to give for me unto Jerusalem and now unto Rome. The Lord's assurance, in other cases, he was delivered, pulled out miraculously of prison, but not this time. But he has a purpose and a destiny, and the Lord is going to be with him. And that sustains Paul through the next two years of prison in Judea and then on to Rome for another two years. Maybe that's not an exciting ending or the ending that we want for our lives is to think, wow, you mean if I follow the Lord, I'm going to end up like that? But it is a testimony of a changed life a life that is focused on the real issue, the risen Christ. And a life that leads to such contrast that it touches other people's lives because they see him as truly different, truly changed, truly evidence of the resurrection. Will you stand with me? Well, when you think of Paul's trials, it's hard to think of our trials because, I mean, why would we even call them trials by comparison? But this week, just daily would you think, how can I turn this trial 
into the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus in me? What difference does he make in my countenance, in my reaction, in the way I have perspective on my life at this time? Maybe I see the providence, or at least I'm confident in the providence of God in my life, and I'm going to turn to him to deal with this in a way that shows he's real in me. Boy, that would be a very special day and week for each and every one of us. Let me pray for us. Listen, if the Lord has spoken to your heart, and uh, whether it's to pray for you or to pray for someone that you care greatly about, as we sing after uh, I close in prayer or after we hear music, <laughs> not sing, as I give you, after I give you the blessing, if you'd like to come down and pray with me or the elders and their wives, other staff of our pastors, uh, come and pray. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, how grateful for we are for Jesus Christ. Refresh us in our spirits, um, our hearts, and our minds. Remind us of who you are. May we walk in the power of your Holy Spirit by faith, trusting you, making a difference in our world this week, and turning trials into a testimony of your presence in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you.